I hear music in the air, too. This morning, through all of our music, we honor the rich and beautiful tradition of African-American spirituals. We honor the long and arduous battle for freedom that they represent. Freedom is one of our most cherished values as Unitarian Universalists. Freedom of religion, freedom of thought, freedom of the pulpit and the pew are all values that we have fought for. We have fought to uphold. And our history includes many who engaged fully in the fight for the physical and spiritual freedom of people in slavery in this country. It was our universalist forebears who were first to speak out amongst our Unitarian and Universalist ancestors. And as a faith, no less, not an individual. The the 1790 Universalist Convention that happened in Philadelphia passed the following resolution, written by Benjamin Rush, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. It states, We believe it to be inconsistent with the union of the human race in a common savior and the obligations to mutual and universal love which flow from that union to hold any part of our fellow creatures in bondage. We therefore recommend a total reframing from refraining from the African trade and the adoption of prudent measures for the gradual abolition of the slavery of Negroes in our country and for the instruction and education of their children in English literature and in the principles of the gospel. Now, in 1790, this was a very radical thing to say, right? We often lift up also Unitarian minister Theodore Parker, who wrote this in a sermon he delivered in 1851 in response to the Fugitive Slave Act, which required all people to assist in the capture and return of fugitive people to slavery. He, he spoke and wrote, This law has brought us to the most intimate connection with the sin of slavery. I have been obliged to take my own parishioners into my house to keep them out of the clutches of the kidnapper. Yes, gentlemen, I have been obliged to do that, and then to keep my doors guarded by day as well as by night. Yes, I have had to arm myself. I have written my sermons with a pistol on my desk, loaded and ready for action. Yea, with a drawn sword within reach of my hand. This I have done in Boston in the middle of the 19th century. I have been obliged to do it to defend innocent members of my own church, women as well as men. Now this legendary picture of Parker writing his sermons with a pistol in one hand and a sword within reach is one of our faith's most treasured memories of this time. Yes, we have much to be proud of in the historical fight for the freedom of people held in slavery in this country. But it's not quite that simple. For it was one of our own, President Millard Fillmore, a Unitarian, who signed the Fugitive Slave Act into law. Our spiritual ancestors were on all sides of the issues of slavery, While Parker was not alone in his radical denouncement of slavery and in his proud disobedience to a law which he deemed unjust, while many other prominent abolitionists were Unitarians and Universalists, 
There were many whose own financial interests were so tied up in the slave trade that they were very reluctant to oppose it. And there were many who favored a very gradual end to slavery, so to disrupt the economic order as little as possible and to offer some compensation to those who invested their money in the purchase of people, not to the people themselves. Just down the street from Theodore Parker in Boston, Orville Dewey, who served as the assistant to William Ellery Channing, though a Unitarian Universalist minister himself, he wrote these words in 1851 in stark contrast to those of Parker. If a fugitive came to me, professed his divine right to be free, and asked for help, I would reply, your fight to be free is not absolute unqualified, irrespective of all consequences. If my espousal of your claim is likely to involve your race and mine together in disasters infinitely greater than your personal servitude, then you ought not to be free. In such a case, personal rights ought to be sacrificed to the general good. You yourself ought to see this and to be willing to suffer for a while. One for many, If I were in your situation, I should take this to ground. These words bring to mind and stand in stark contrast to the words of our opening hymn. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my God and be free. The bitter truth that people would have rather died than be held in slavery haunts us. And how arrogant it is for someone to argue that it is worth the greater good when they have no idea what that bondage might actually be like. The argument that slavery was good for people was made by even more of our own. In 1851, Richard Dennis Arnold, mayor of Savannah, Georgia, and a Unitarian went as, as far as to write, Servitude is happiness to Negro. Liberty is a means to happiness to the Anglo-Saxon, and the present relative condition of both races is the best security for the prosperity and well-being of the whole community. It has worked well and would have worked well forever if left alone. Chilling, right? What captures my attention most, though, from this period of our history is our gradual shifts. Not just that we had people on both extremes, but that we had people in between grappling, really delving into the, con- the meat of this issue. Some of us learned and changed our stances over time. Some of our people were open to being personally transformed and then transforming the world as well. The story of this that stands out most for me is that of William Ellery Channing. Channing served the Federal Street Church in Boston, which would later become the Arlington Street Church, which I have called my spiritual home when living in Boston. Federal Street Church was full of the Boston elite, men who had their interests greatly intertwined with the slave trade. Yes, even in Boston. As their minister and as a product of his time, like all were then, Channing was reluctant to grapple with the issue of slavery for a good portion of his ministry. 
Given the significant influence of his pulpit over those in power, he was courted by many abolitionists to speak out against slavery. Channing was intrigued by Unitarian Lydia Maria Child's book, An Appeal in Favor of That Class of Americans Called Africans, in 1833, in which she wrote, In a community where all labor is done by one class, there must, of course, be another class who live in indolence, and we all know how much people that have nothing to do are tempted by what the world calls pleasures. The result is that slaveholding states and colonies are proverbial for dissipation, hence, too, the contempt for industry which prevails in such a state of society. Where none work but slaves, usefulness becomes degradation. Here we see the seeds of a strong argument for why slavery was not just destructive for those in bondage. When Channing did begin to speak out against slavery, He argued that it was a poisonous system that did not just harm those held within it, but harmed those who held them as well. And in this way, he was able to reach out pastorally to his congregation and urge them to free themselves as well from the bondage of their involvement in the slave trade. This sentiment was not his alone, and he was clearly influenced by many who had realized that by denying the freedom of another, we also forfeit our own. In 1844, Unitarian minister Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote that with slavery, everything goes to decay. In 1846, Unitarian minister Thomas Wentworth Higginson wrote and published a hymn that stated, There is no liberty for them who make their brethren slaves. In 1866, African-American writer and activist Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who was a member of both Unitarian and AME churches, wrote, We are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity, and society cannot trample on the weakest and feeblest of its members without receiving the curse in its own soul. You tried that in the case of the Negro. You pressed him down for two centuries, and in so doing, you crippled the moral strength and paralyzed the spiritual energies of the white men in this country. We are all bound together in one great bundle of humanity. As we heard, Martin Luther King Jr. called this the network of mutuality. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are all poisoned by the injustices that we are complicit in. In fact, we cannot remain free if any of our siblings in the universal family are held in bondage. Yet we know that there are still those who struggle for their freedom. We know that the abolition of slavery did not end the institution altogether. And it certainly didn't end racism. We know that people have given their lives for the ongoing struggle for racial equality in this country. We know that the fight for freedom and equity for people of color continues in this land to this day. Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, writes that we are caught in a cyclical rebirth of caste in America 
that is a recurring racial nightmare. She notes that there are more African Americans under correctional control today, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, the year that the Fugitive Slave Act was signed into law a decade before the Civil War. As of 2004, she writes, more African-American men were disenfranchised due to felon disenfranchisement laws than in 1870, the year the 15th Amendment was ratified, prohibiting laws that explicitly denied the right to vote on the basis of race. She points out that while crime rates are at historical lows, imprisonment rates have soared, quadrupled, actually, And the vast majority of that increase, she argues, is due to the war on drugs, a war waged waged almost exclusively in poor communities of color, even though studies consistently show that people of all colors use and sell illegal drugs at similar rates. In fact, she says, some studies indicate that white youth are significantly more likely to engage in illegal drug dealing than black youth. And we know the drug offenders in our prisons are overwhelmingly people of color. The private prison system has been compared to modern-day slavery, holding people of color in bondage. If this is true, then none of us is free. If this is true, then our whole society is being poisoned by the systemic oppression of our fellow Americans. And from the four experiences that I've had on the insides of jail and jails in this country, I believe this to be true. The first time was a young religious Unitarian Universalist social justice conference in Washington, D.C. We visited a privately owned prison, part of the prison industrial complex, and saw some of these disturbing truths that we had been studying together. And later when I followed in the footsteps of our spiritual ancestors, like Theodore Parker, by engaging in civil disobedience, I spent a day and a half in the 4th Street Jail in Phoenix, Arizona. There, I truly saw what Michelle Alexander describes with my own eyes. Now, while the story of what landed me in that jail will have to wait for another day, (laughs) I must tell you that I believe strongly that our prison system is broken built on dehumanizing tactics, and severely problematic. In The New Yorker last month, Adam Gopnik tackled this troubling question of our prison system with his article, The Caging of America, Why Why We Lock Up So Many People. And I would recommend looking it up, or I have a couple copies if anyone's interested. He tells that the six million people who are currently under correctional supervision in the U.S., or more than in the Gulag archipelago under Stalin at its height, and are given sentences much longer than those given for similar crimes anywhere else in the world. Between 1980 and 2010, the number of people incarcerated in relation to the population of the U.S. has more than tripled. In the past two decades, the money that states spend on prisons has risen at six times the rate of spending on higher education. And he notes that blacks are not 
are incarcerated seven times as often as whites. Seven times. Without even getting into the horrid conditions within most prisons, and that privately owned prisons make more money as profit the more they save on feeding and clothing and taking care of the people in their care, the system seems to me to be institutionalized racism. Adam Gopnik wrote, No one who has been inside a prison, if only for a day, can ever forget the feeling. Time stops. A note of accentuated panic, of watchful paranoia, anxiety and boredom and fear mixed into a new kind of enveloping fog, covering the guards as well as the guarded. Yes, he writes, the guards are doing time too. In fact, we're all doing time. We're all complicit in this system that is out of control. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that kind of mass injustice is not something that I care to stand idly by and watch. And when we lock up much of a whole population of people, when we discriminate so clearly based on race, None of us are free. My freedom, my liberation, depends on the freedom of others. Now, I don't presume to have the answers to the problem. I don't presume to know what alternatives we should try. It's not my area of expertise. I merely know that what we are doing is poisoning us all. And furthermore, it isn't working. And I believe that we, as people full of promise, as a nation built on the ideals of freedom and equality, we can do better. I believe we must do better. Even knowing that I had lawyers already fighting for my release and being surrounded by Unitarian Universalist activist women, it took me a few days to feel human again after being released from jail. It took me a few days to feel human again. We have to find a way around the mass dehumanization of people, of all people. For in dehumanizing people, we as a society dehumanize ourselves. Let me repeat the words of Francis Ellen Watkins Harper of 1866. We are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity. And society cannot trample on the weakest and feeblest of its members without receiving the curse in its own soul. Let's find another solution. Let us dismantle a system that threatens all of our freedom. Let us continue our journey towards a beloved community of all souls where all are free. Let us sing of liberation, knowing that until all are free. None are. Amen.